0: Boy, prayer doesn't look like that for me anymore. The most powerful prayer that I've ever prayed was September 24th, 2012, and it was three days after I should have died. Um, you talked to the doctors who were there with me in that ICU room. Uh, I couldn't feel my legs for three days. They thought my liver was going to fail. Uh, I was in and out of this fog. But three days after I should have died, I rolled over. I sat up for the first time. I slowly put my feet on the floor. The nurse helped me into a wheelchair. Me, this guy who everyone thought was on top of the world. Suddenly, it felt like the world was on top of me. And the nurse rolled me down the hall from ICU to the psych ward. And that great, Big, giant, brown metal door clanged shut behind me. And the most powerful prayer that I've ever prayed in my life, it was just a whisper. And I said, if you're there, help me.
1: Hey there, you're dialed into Reboots, featuring stories about people who have been forced to start over in life or in business, all walks of life. Anonymous or named, high-profile or low-down, stories with heart, soul, and grit, because knowing and sharing our stories is essential for living a life of joy, experiencing healthy relationships, and impacting the world around us in a positive way. Here's your host, Tracy Winch. Hey,
2: hey, episode R018 features Steve Austin, <laughs> no, not stone cold. Not even the $6 million man. This Steve Austin's life is filled with the messy grace of a God who still loves him and still allowed a traumatic event into his life when he was very young. Steve, you see, was a victim of childhood rape, and he had no recollection of the event until he was 18. It seems a leadership-related field trip triggered flashbacks of that terrible moment on a hot summer night in Alabama. Steve talks openly about how living with the realization of that traumatic event eventually pushed him over the edge, contributing to his decision to take his own life. Except the youth pastor and worship leader survived not only the attempt on his own life, but also the shame and the guilt associated with all of this stuff. Today, Steve writes books, produces podcasts, and sometimes creates what I term compassionate tweet storms that help others navigate trauma, shame, suicide attempts, and mischaracterizations of the God he now knows. Steve is a husband, father of two, a mental health advocate, a life coach, and a follower of a Jesus Christ who he says brought the marginalized among him In from the edges and pushed the religious of his day toward showing compassion and love for the fringes of society. Hey, Steve, thank you so much for inviting us into your life. I appreciate you joining us.
0: Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. What an honor.
2: You know, I I go to Twitter every now and again. I try to make it a once a week practice and I look for someone who has a compelling story. And I found you in the midst of a tweet storm where you tend to find yourself fairly often. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so, not as bad as it
1: <laughs> sounds, I swear. No,
2: I I don't I, I I don't mean that in a bad way. I really don't. Um, I I love the fact that you are constantly challenging convention um, based on your real life experiences. Um, and I want to start with uh, your life Today, it appears to be fairly normal, and uh, as we dive into your reboots story a little bit, we're going to fully embrace uh, what cause for celebration it is for you to have such a normal in air quotes life.
0: Yeah, sure. So life today, yeah, life today is it is really good. I am a husband. Now, Lindsay and I have been married a little more than 10 years. I am Dada uh, to Ben, who is a kindergartner, and Caroline, who is three and a half, going on 37.
1: (laughs) And, uh,
0: oh, they are the light of my life. And uh, I'm a sign language interpreter. That is what pays the bills. And uh, a side of my story that I don't talk about much, but it's a really cool job. It's something that not just everybody does. And so I, I get to interpret phone calls all day long, which is just uh, – it's really neat. It's always something different and interesting. I, I, no call is ever the same. I promise you that. And, um, you know, I'm a writer. Um, I have a, an Amazon bestselling book, which is kind of cool. And – I um have my own podcast and I'm a former pastor and um yeah just love life and thankful for every single day cuz every single day is a gift.
2: See that does sound fairly normal for a guy to be stirring up a tweet storm on seems like that's on your schedule and <laughs> you know and and I, again, I applaud that. I, I, I marvel at your willingness to step into the breach. And again, I, it's a little bit of a tease and maybe it's unfair, um, to, to just start out that way. Um, but I, I think that there is reason behind all of that. And, and we're going to, we're going to dive into that. Y- your reboot story is something that you share often. And that is often part of the whole. Twitter persona and the truth that you share that stirs up so much stuff, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Where else do you share your story?
0: I share my story um, at gracesmessy.com. Um, and, and just that right there, you know, we'll, we'll throw people for a loop that grace could somehow be messy, but, uh, yeah, that's part of my reboot story. Um, grace for me is very messy. It's not always pristine and white and clean and beautiful, but for me, grace has gotten down in the muck and the mire with me and God has been present with me, um, through every experience that I've been through, good and not so lovely. So gracesmessy.com is where I share my story. Um, I also share my story on my podcast, which is the Ask Steve Austin podcast. And um, I'm a life coach and uh, just, you know, I share my story every chance I get with everybody that I get the chance to share it with.
2: Describes your your reboot. Was it a moment or a coincidence? Maybe a choice or a series of choices. Boy,
0: it was a moment. But that moment, that um, that sort of, I think about it like like a kettle on the stove. Okay, and. Um, you know, sometimes we sit the kettle on the stove and it's got, let's say, I don't know, two cups of water in it. We're going to make a, a cup of hot tea and we sit it on the stove and we turn the heat up on high and we got our cup out and we have put a tablespoon of honey and we've got our tea bag and the phone rings. And we're going to answer the phone real quick because it's going to take a good five minutes for that kettle to come to a boil and we get on the phone and somebody else's world has just crumbled uh, at the same time that we've got this kettle on the stove. And before you know it, we are lost in conversation and we've completely forgotten. And the kettle is screaming, hollering, trying to get our attention and the steam is flying out, just, you know, screaming out of there. And if we are gone for too long, that water will completely evaporate and scorch the bottom of the kettle. And then it's no good for us. It's no good for anyone else. And, um, so that's sort of what I think about when I look back on my story, that the kettle was screaming in one moment, but it took 30 years of simmering and then boiling and being neglected, um, before my story really erupted. So, I was uh, almost a four-year-old. I was a preschooler in the side yard at my parents' house. Summer night in Alabama, good, hot, humid. The gnats were out. Such a bizarre detail to remember. But um, the neighbor's 17-year-old son was over because the neighbor man was helping my dad build a deck onto our house. And um, that young man had been at our house often and was comfortable around our home and my family and me because my mom was tutoring him after school. And um, I was broken. I was abused that summer night in the side yard at my parents' home. I was molested and I'm a a victim and a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and so when rape which is a a really strong and uncomfortable word and a word that I didn't use until probably oh I don't know a year ago but when rape is your first memory the very first thing that you can remember um, That one incident really has the potential to ripple out into the rest of your life, and that's what it did for me. So my parents figured out what happened that night. Like I say, I was not quite four years old. They're giving me a bath, and they could see marks on my body. And mom asked what happened, and in my preschool way, I described what happened. And – she freaked out and screamed and called for my dad who was a paramedic. And uh, dad came in and, and I explained it again. And um, we lived in a very tiny town in rural Alabama. We were at church every time the doors were open. Dad was uh, the every Sunday singer of the solo in church. And mom was the good little Christian wife. And Super conservative, fundamental family, and my parents were very, very young. And so they did what they thought was best without asking for help or involving other people in a very sensitive story. They went across um, and talked to the boy and threatened him within an inch of his life and told him that if he ever stepped foot on our property again, that they would go to the authorities. They didn't involve his parents because his dad was a raging alcoholic, and my mom feared that um, really bad things would happen to this boy if um, if they went to his parents. And so they threatened him within an inch of his life, and they left it alone. And they figured, um, you know, here's little Steve, a three year old. He's never going to remember this. And so that was it. They prayed a prayer, and and we moved on. And I. Didn't remember any of this that I've just shared with you uh, until I was a senior in high school. And, you know, a lot of times that's how trauma works. It is buried and packed away and, and pressed way down deep into our psyche. And and thank God for that. Um, because I didn't have counseling or therapy or help, I can't imagine If I had been having flashbacks from the age of three to 18, so I didn't have my first flashback until I was a senior in high school. We were on a field trip. I was a a leader in my school and um, part of this leadership cohort from the school district where they picked I think two students from each high school in the district and we would once a month or so go on a field trip to different government agencies or um, small businesses in the community and meet with real life leaders and get to ask them questions and find out what leadership is like in real life. And so on this particular day, we were at the Department of Human Resources which um, could be Child Protective Services in some other state, CPS. But here in Alabama, it's the Department of Human Resources, and it's where children who have been neglected or abused uh, are taken. Social workers are there, and it's where you would go to get food stamps and all that kind of stuff. And so we're sitting in a conference room, and it's these white, I just remember these stark white block walls on this long wooden conference table, this very sterile environment, and I remember thinking, this is where they bring a child that's been abused? This is so unwelcoming, uncomfortable. Like, where are the beanbags? Where are the toys? Shouldn't there be a dollhouse in here, you know? Um, But this is where they would bring those kids. And so the director comes in, and she's explaining the process, and she brings out these dolls And starts talking about how they use these dolls when a child has been abused. And a a little kid would point to various places on the doll where they had been violated. And I'm sitting there, this leader in my school, honor roll student, this kid who has the world on a string everything going for me. Everybody said, Steve's going to be a preacher or a politician. Never met a stranger. Uh, I I was going to go anywhere and do absolutely anything I wanted. And she brings out these dolls and starts telling what they do with these children. And I start having
1: these
0: flashes of memory. And I didn't have – The language and the lingo that I'm going to use today, I didn't have this as an 18-year-old high school senior, but flashbacks, just flashes of memory, just little bits and pieces, almost like having a nightmare. But I was wide awake, and my palms started sweating, and I had this knot in the back of my throat that became a knot in the pit of my stomach, and I thought, I'm going to throw up. My heart is racing. Maybe I'm going to have a heart attack. Maybe I'm dying. Oh, my God. Just get me out of this room. Get me out of this room in front of my peers. Get me out of this room in front of these chaperones and my teachers. I don't know what is happening, but I feel like I'm losing my mind. And so I got up as quietly as I could, and I'm sure it was not quiet. And I got out into the hallway, and I slammed my back against that block wall, and I slid down onto that cold tile floor, and I was hyperventilating. And a teacher followed me out and started checking on me and asking questions, and I tried to explain what I was seeing and these sounds I was hearing and these sort of visions I was having, and I really thought I was losing it. And she said, Steve, it sounds like you're having a panic attack. And I didn't know what that was. And so – She did what any good little teacher would have done back in the day, and she sent me to the bathroom to wash my face off and sort of get it together. And I came back in there, and um, that afternoon I got home and started telling my mom what had happened and these things I was seeing in my brain and and hearing and these flashes of memory and how bizarre – I couldn't even put it into good words – and my mom and I were always really, really close. She's, I'm, I'm a mama's boy. and proud of it. Uh, she was my cheerleader, my best friend, always in my corner, my number one fan. I could talk to my mama about anything. And it's the first time that I ever remember her not making eye contact with me. And I remember thinking, this is so bizarre. What is going on? And so I'm describing all of this stuff. And she starts telling me the story I shared with you about me being a preschooler in the side yard and what happened and bath time. And she gets upset and I get pretty upset. And we're crying and she takes my hand and she starts praying this prayer. Uh, A prayer that I am certain I had heard many other times that you know, she would plead the blood of Jesus over my mind and put a hedge of protection around me, right? And all of these things, these phrases that we use when we are praying and asking God to fix things because that's what I knew God to do, that we would take what my friend J.J. Landis calls a magic Jesus pill. We would take a magic Jesus pill and suddenly – everything would be better. And so we did that. And that was at 18. And we didn't talk about it again until I was 28. Because in the world I grew up in, uh, and and I don't, you know, there was a long time where I was angry. Um, I was angry at the church. I was angry at my parents. I was angry at the injustice. I was angry that nothing had been done. I'm not there anymore. Um, What happened is, incredibly traumatic and unfortunate and terrible. And I tell my story so that other parents um, who maybe know that something has happened to their child or teachers or Sunday school teachers or leaders of the church, if, if you have an idea that something has happened to a child speak up and get help and take that child to a professional. Um, That's why I tell my story, but not because I'm angry, not because I hate my parents. I certainly don't. Um, But we didn't talk about it again. We didn't talk about it again for another 10 years. And so I was 28 years old. I had a little boy of my own and a wife, and I was a youth pastor and a worship leader and on staff at a church. And these flashbacks had been happening for 10 years now. And anxiety, the white noise of anxiety just screaming in my ears. And um, the black dog of depression, people describe depression like a black dog nipping at your heels. And um, there were days I thought that black dog was just going to devour me. And I was scared to death for anybody to know, because I was a Bible school graduate, praise the Lord, and you know, had read my Bible every day and prayed every day and done all of the – I had checked off the good little Christian checklist, but I was still struggling with mental health. And so in the world I grew up in, if we're going to get really real, in the world I grew up in, in the church world that I grew up in, you could either be Christian – or you could be crazy. And that's a terrible word. Crazy is a terrible, awful word. But it's it's the way that I grew up. You could be one or the other, but you couldn't be both. If you had depression or anxiety, if you needed to take some pill, a happy pill, right, then you obviously didn't have enough faith or there was a sin problem in your life. And so at the age of 28 with – A wife and a one year old, I decided that the best thing that I could do to stop being a burden on my family, to not have a little boy who was raised with a crazy dad, to give this beautiful young wife of mine an opportunity to have a normal life, that the best thing I could do would be to end it all and kill myself. And so that's where my
2: life began. Wow. Let's just stick with um with the childhood and the, the relationship with God for a minute, if you don't mind, Steve. Um, Do you remember when God just simply was and we didn't have to sort out the rationale that people used to do the best that they could in the name of God, even when it was the wrong thing to do? Mm. Yeah,
1: yeah. I-
0: God was the answer for everything. There was a a spiritual answer for every problem. God was. God was. (laughs) It was all God. It was all Jesus. It was all prayer. Every answer that you ever needed could be found in the Bible. And um, secular was a bad word. Um, there were secular music. You couldn't be a Christian in the circles I grew up in. You couldn't be a Christian and listen to secular music. Yeah. Yeah. And we had Christian schools. Right. And I think, what if if we had Christian ice cream, Tracy? You know, like we just slap that word on something and suddenly, well, hallelujah, you know, (laughs) Uh, and it's just, it's just silly to me. It's just silly to me because. Boy, these days things look really different. Still love God. There's still a lot of spiritual answers to a lot of things. Um, Love Jesus with all my heart. But (laughs) – and I haven't thrown out the baby with the bathwater because there's a baby in there. Um, But there's a lot of bathwater in there. There's a lot of bathwater in there. So – so. Yeah, I do remember those days when it seemed really simple. Um, But I've lived long enough to know that life's just really not that simple.
2: What's the difference now in the way that you approach your relationship with God versus how you approached your relationship with God um, up until the time you were um, planning to end it all? Mm-hmm. You know,
0: I, I grew up where we quoted scripture. I would write it on an index card and put it in the front pocket of my shirt. And so for me, prayer was things like um, Matthew 7-7 in the King James Bible says, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened. And so I pictured God as this mix between Santa Claus and the genie in Aladdin's lamp with the voice of Robin Williams, by the way. And I believed that if I did all the right things and followed after God's will, that God would somehow magically meet my every request, that you – rub Buddha's belly, right, on the way out of the Chinese restaurant, and now supernaturally everything's going to fall into place and your whole existence will make sense. That's 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 the view I had, this cosmic Santa Claus. And now, <laughs> um, boy, prayer doesn't look like that for me anymore. The most powerful prayer that I've ever prayed was September 24th. 2012, and it was three days after I should have died. Um, you talked to the doctors who were there with me in that ICU room. Uh, I couldn't feel my legs for three days. They thought my liver was going to fail. Uh, I was in and out of this fog. But three days after I should have died, I rolled over. I sat up for the first time. I slowly put my feet on the floor The nurse helped me into a wheelchair, me, this guy who everyone thought was on top of the world. Suddenly it felt like the world was on top of me. And the nurse rolled me down the hall from ICU to the psych ward. And that great, big, giant, brown metal door clanged shut behind me. And the most powerful prayer that I've ever prayed in my life, it was just a whisper. And I said, if you're there, help me. That was it. I couldn't quote scripture. I couldn't argue the details of theology. I wasn't even sure in that moment if God was there. But if you're there, boy, this would be a great time to show up. And so prayer became faith and action. The act of choosing to get better – Was more powerful than uttering those few words. If you're there, help me. And so in that moment, I chose to live. I chose not to try to die again. And it's, here's the truth. Everybody's recovering from something. Preach. I I mean, that's. That's it. So maybe maybe you're not the youth pastor who attempted suicide. Maybe you weren't raped as a preschooler in the side yard. Um, maybe you don't have any idea what it's like to be addicted to heroin. But we're all recovering from something. And so the choice to shake loose from everything that's wounded us to get really honest about our traumas, about our pains, about the things we don't understand, about how angry we are, right? And how we just don't understand how can this God of love that you tell me about, this God who is in control that you tell me about, how could all this have happened? And to let ourselves be okay sitting there for a minute, I don't want to stay there forever. But but to be okay, being angry, being upset, being sad, crying our eyes out, not having an answer. And to learn that that all of life is a prayer, that everything we do is spiritual, that every word we speak, every action we take is an act of worship. Because if you want to go back to the Bible – John 4, 24 in the message says, it is who you are and the way you live that count before God. So everything we say and do is a declaration of who we are, how we value our life, and what we want to give to the rest of the world. So every day is a gift, and I mean it because I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't have the opportunity to look my little boy in those bright, shiny, blue eyes eyes. Every day I shouldn't have that chance, but I do, and I shouldn't have the opportunity to dance with my wife in the kitchen, but I have that gift every day. But it's only a gift if I unwrap it, if I use it, if I embrace it, if I recognize it. Otherwise, it's just another day, and I don't want to live my life with it being just another day. Day, because I know what it's like to not want to live. I know what it's like to hate myself. I know what it's like to be drowning in fear, shame, and guilt-based religion that have nothing to do with the message of Jesus. Wow. Well, you got me fired up.
2: Who you got me speechless? That's hard to do. <sighs> Who were you able to forgive the give first? I mean, I. I'm actively involved in Celebrate Recovery and have oh. been for four and a half years. Oh, um, what a wonderful program! Yeah, um, mm. unresolved grief, self doubt. Um, mm. We've 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 gone through a, a, a lot of different issues, and uh, that'll be something that I do for the rest of my life because it's the process that Jesus gave us that He worked, that He provided in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Beatitudes. It's mm. not how He told us to live. Mm. It's how he lived, right? Yeah. And so you're right. There is there is action behind our faith. If there's not, um, we're going to continue to hurt ourselves and other people. And, you know, we, we are encouraged as part of the step work to learn how to forgive others and to forgive ourselves. And I'm working through this process about who I am forgiving first, those who have hurt me. Or myself, and it's sort of like it's sort of like walking a huge refrigerator uh, in into place, just kind of dogging it in just a little bit at a time. And so, I'm really curious who were who have you been able to forgive first? Someone who hurt you, a category of someone's who have hurt you, or yourself?
0: Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes to all of that. Um, you know, the hardest, anybody will tell you this. This is not a shock to anybody. The hardest person to forgive is myself. Um, and I I have done the hard work. I have sat on that couch in a counselor's office more hours than I would like to admit. Um, but I've done it. I've gotten really honest. Um I the hardest thing for me, other than forgiving myself, the hardest and most awkward thing for me was returning to the church because, you know, here I am waking up in this ICU room, freezing cold, shaken. All I want is another hot blanket out of the dryer that was the greatest gift in the world to me waking up wanting to die wishing that I had succeeded which is a terrible word to succeed a suicide attempt but I remember looking out the window and thinking what now you know I I am such a failure that I can't even get a suicide right and so what now Um, And I live in Alabama where there's a church on every corner, you know, and and so obviously this is just, you know, this is the way I'm processing five years ago. Obviously, I'm never going to be welcomed on church staff. I'll never be a minister again. Um, But will I ever even just be able to sneak in five minutes after church has started and sit on the back pew? Because there's nothing in this world I love more than hearing worship music, than people lifting their voices together and singing to God and asking God to come into our presence and be here with us and and allow us to be, to commune with God, to have community, common unity. That's the most beautiful gift that we have, but how could I ever enter back into that place? Because... We say, come just as you are. But in two weeks, we want to know what committee you're going to serve on. We want to know, we're going to tell you how to dress. Uh, We're going to need you to at least be working in the nursery or singing in the choir. Like, you've got to be doing something. And we don't really do a great job with allowing people to truly just rest. Um, And there are people like I was with a broken brain. And a broken heart and a broken spirit, and they're crushed, and they feel hopeless, and they believe that all the bad things they've ever done in their life are beyond redemption and and that they are nothing more than the sum of all the mistakes they've ever made, and they're just looking for a safe place to just take a deep breath and we don't always do a great job at at just letting them be not not always long enough we put timelines on grief and on healing and on recovery and on redemption and you know redemption i think um this is steve austin's simple theology here okay because everything i do is simple but i think redemption is it's immediate it's overnight jesus says you are forgiven i it, you come just as you are i love you as you are and not as you should be boom you are loved you belong But recovery takes time. Restoration takes time. I go buy that that old 65 step side Chevy that I just love, and I drool every time I drive by it. But it's rusty, and the motor is locked up, but I drool over it. I can go give the guy $1,000, and I have redeemed it in an instant but it's going to take me a year to restore that thing to what it could be, what it used to be, what it should be. And so it's it's that same way in life, but we think that there's got to be this timeline and we really do people and God an injustice when we don't just give people space to be loved, to belong, and to just be. I don't know that I've answered your question. I think that I have rambled, but there it is. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, i i I think it's um, I think it's wise, and I think it is um, useful and constructive. That's a great way to put it. Um, as I was preparing to chat with you and and maximize our time and the time of our our listeners, um, this word popped into my head. You know, one of those things like. Uh, where did that come from? Moments, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, the phrase "social constructs of God" came to mind, and it mm. it sounds like in your life um, that's sort of part of your victimization story. And breaking those social constructs and becoming honest seems to be a big part of your redemption and reboot story. And sort of one of the things you champion. So, riff a little bit off how you would view social constructs of God.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I wrote a piece for HuffPost probably a year ago, maybe a little longer than that, called um, Is Your Faith Water or Cement? And um, that article opens with uh, just a couple of lines from To Kill a Mockingbird. And um, Harper Lee said, sometimes the Bible in the hand of one man is worse than a whiskey bottle in the hand of another. There are just some kind of men who are so busy worrying about the next world that they've never lived in this one. And you can look down the street and see the results. So I, when I read that, and I've read that, That book over and over again because I get it. I get that small town, black and white kind of faith where there's an answer for everything. And the way I grew up, whether it was taught explicitly or not, I grew up in a very fear-based kind of Christianity where if you don't Look like me, dress like me, vote like me, think like me, speak like me, worship like me. If you aren't like me, then something is wrong with you. And I grew up in this faith that was cement. It was absolute. It was definable and tangible and defendable, right? Faith was Always the hill to die on. And we will fight people tooth and nail to the death and destroy them in social media, on Twitter, uh, in in rants, whoever we are, um, if we believe that we are right and they are wrong. And we don't disagree well. We've, we've lost decency, I think. We've lost kindness. Um, And so my goal is always choosing kindness over rightness and allowing my faith to become, instead of cement, immovable, right? To become like water. Uh, and a friend of mine described her faith this way, and I said, "Oh, that's what I want. That that faith is like a a, a moving river, and it's flowing, and you walk up to the riverbank and." Uh, maybe there's a big sycamore tree and you sit down and you rest against the trunk of that sycamore tree and you watch the water floating by and maybe you get brave enough to tiptoe up just to the edge and you just stick a toe in, right? Or maybe you step on out and um, you you stand and wait in the water or maybe all you can do is scoop up a little bit in your hands and most of it slips through your fingers. But faith is not this thing that I can control. It is bigger than me. It's always shifting and morphing and moving. And I think the whole point is learning to live in the gray areas. That maybe there are some things that are black and white. And, and maybe we do need some guardrails to our faith to say, okay, look, you got some wiggle room here, but let's stay sort of in between the guardrails. But I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of doubts. I have a lot of things that just don't make sense that that we have just sort of said this is the way it's always been. you know this is the Bible says it, and I believe it by God, you know, and that's the way my mama believed and my grandmama believed it you know, and it just it doesn't work that way for me. maybe it works that way for other people and lucky you um but i i I struggle real hard with these social constructs that we put people in boxes. You've got to check all of these boxes and we've got to label you and we've got to organize people and separate people and you stay here and you go over there and this is your place and that is your place. And we have become so polarized. We are so tribalistic, at least in American evangelical Christianity today. We've got you are either the religious right or you're a bleeding heart snowflake liberal. And and there's nobody standing in the middle saying, hey, come here. Hey, you over there, come here. Hey, you over on that side, come here. And let's look each other in the eyes and let's shake hands and let's embrace because we are all just trying to make it. Life is really hard. And we have been through things that could have destroyed us, but we are still here trying to make it another day, just trying to do our best. And we may not agree on everything, and we're likely going to disagree on much. But can we come to the middle and talk about it instead of yelling from across the ravine, from the other side, screaming and dehumanizing and demonizing the other side and making them out to be Anti-God, right, because they're not our kind of Christian or American. I look at the example of Jesus who constantly broke religious and cultural rules on behalf of the disenfranchised who needed love and healing and belonging. Jesus went to people, and every time he went to somebody, he met a need. And he wasn't going to the religious elite or the one with the biggest political platform right, or the best-selling book. He went to people on the edges, the outliers, the people who had been cast aside, and he said, hey, come to the center. And he's constantly going to those people in the center, the people with the privilege, and sending them out to the edges and saying, bring them in. Let's make room at the table. Right. Hey, you scoot over and make room for her. There's room for her here too. And so I just know what it's like to feel hopeless. I know what it's like for the middle of my day to feel just as dark as the darkest night and to feel like there is no hope for me. And – I'm hungry, and I'm tired, and I'm thirsty, and I need Jesus to come and, and offer me that living water, that hope. I need him to soothe my spirit, right? And the only way that, that I can be that to other people who are in the exact same place is if my faith is like water, So instead of trying to shove all the rules and the red tape and the religion and the regulations of religion down people's throat, I just need to offer a cup of cold water. I just need to show up and be present with people in their pain. Um, Richard Rohr said that people who've had any genuine spiritual experience always know that they don't know. They are utterly humbled before mystery. They are in awe before the abyss of it all, in wonder at eternity and depth and love, which is incomprehensible to the mind. So I I think to wrap this little spiel up, if we would humble ourselves and realize that we don't have all the answers, realize that – Maybe some of the stuff we've been taught all our lives is not just exactly right, and that the greatest thing that we can do is have compassion on people, even those we don't understand. We could change the world.
2: Yeah. Can we offer advice and encouragement for two different people who are listening to our podcast? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. The first person who is on my heart right now is the young man who feels trapped by the social constructs of God and the expectations of church and family and whatever else pressures there are in his life. And he's kind of thinking, maybe I need to just check out. What advice or encouragement do you have for that young man?
0: To hold on. And that's hard because I was that young man and I'm screaming back, I don't want to hold on. I've been holding on for 30 years. I can't hold on another day. My advice is to step back from the ledge. Take a deep breath. Call somebody. Call somebody who loves you. And I know that you think the whole world is against you, but I promise there's somebody out there that cares. Call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Those people are trained. They are trained volunteers who will listen, who will be present with you. I know that you're not looking for somebody else to give you advice or answers. You really just want somebody to give you a hug. Like that's the best advice in the whole world It's just a hug. So take a deep breath. Take a step back. Find somebody that will listen and tell the truth. Tell the truth about how deeply you've been wounded, how angry you are, how scared you are, how brokenhearted you are, how hopeless you feel. Tell somebody. That's what I would tell you. And to know that at the very end of the rope, you are not without hope you are not without hope and god is not disappointed in you and the last the last little piece of advice is to do your best to separate the sometimes nasty behavior and attitudes of other people from the character of god sometimes we christians give god a really bad name but that's not god
2: what about the woman who's maybe 59 or 60 years old And she is so tired of being hurt. She's so tired of burying her hurt. And she's beginning to realize that maybe she's lashing out at other people in the name of God. People like you who, and, and she's tired of it. What's the first step that she needs to take to build a relationship with God? and to make amends maybe for the hurt that she realizes that she's causing other people in herself because she's so angry and and unaccepting of different views of God.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah. You know, the first thing I had to do, because I was this kid who had been raised in church, did the ministry school thing, Traveled around the world doing missions, and I had all the answers. And especially in my years of ministry school, I pushed away a lot and wounded a lot, ruined a lot of relationships because I had the answers. And anybody that didn't look like me, like I said earlier, vote, dress, think, worship like me, they were obviously wrong. And, you know, it took a suicide attempt. For me to realize that there are people out there who are just trying to do their best, who are broken-hearted, who don't have all the answers, and maybe they're wrong. Maybe their perspective of God isn't right. But I promise you that with your righteous indignation, uh, you know, and, and your preaching, and your proselytizing, and your evangelizing, and all of it, you're not going to change them. But if you stop and you ask, their story and you wait for their response and you look them in the eye and they know that you are present and that you genuinely care and want to learn what has made them this way. What has brought them to this place? Why are they here? Why do they believe the things that they believe? Um, It's a great place to start just listening to people. And then the other piece of advice for that person because most often that person is, they're scared, number one. Fear fear rules the day. Fear makes us vote certain ways. Fear keeps us in the pews on Sundays because we're scared to death of God and hell and vengeance. But they're, they're scared, number one. And the second thing is they're scared and they also want to fix it. Usually those people who are scared to death are also the fixers. And so I would say to the fixer, Who's also angry <laughs> to let go, to put put some things down, trying to carry everyone else's burden and everyone else's eternal security and all of this stuff. Take the cross off your back. Take the cape off your shoulders. Sit down. Rest. Get really clear on who you are and who God is before you try to go save the world.
2: Wow. You could have been talking to me about five years ago. No. (laughs) (laughs) Only I was younger then, yeah. (laughs) Okay, Uh, a specific tool, a book, scripture, a movie, something that you would recommend to either of these types of individuals or anybody who just wants to uh, find peace and clarity and, and hope and to understand the difference between the science of psychology and mental health And the faith um, that we find in Scripture.
0: Yeah. Um, Three places. Uh, A couple of them are selfish. Um, One is my book, Uh, Self Care for the Wounded Soul. It is a 21-day self-care journal. It's all about this messy grace thing we've been talking about for the last hour. I wrote it with my friend Kate Piper, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist. And it walks you through 21 days of trying to create a life of Focused emotional health and clarity while also being a person of faith. So that's the first one. Um, The second one is the podcast that I'm a co-host on. It's CXMH, which is a podcast at the intersection of Christianity and mental health. And so Robert Vore and I, every week, uh, we try to have a mental health professional and a Christian leader, a faith leader, on at the same time to talk about various issues at the intersection of faith. And mental health. So that one is CXMH. And then the last one is a book that has helped me so much. It's by Paul Young, who wrote The Shack, which was really popular here a few years ago and the movie came out this year. Um, but he has his first nonfiction book is called Lies We Believe About God. And that book has rocked my world. One of my favorite lies that we believe about God that Paul um tries to help us clear up is that God loves me, but God doesn't really like me. It's a lie that most of us believe. God loves me, but God doesn't really like me. And he goes through, oh, I don't know, 14, 15, 16 lies that we believe about God. So go check that out.
2: That's awesome. Yeah. Let's get back to you and then we'll wrap up. I I, I know I need to, to let you go. I've gone, on, gone over our time, um, but I knew this was going to be awesome. Thank you, Steve. Um, oh, thank you. Let's go Victor Frankel. What good in your life exists today that wouldn't have existed without the darkness in your life?
0: Mm. You know, it it's bizarre to me, but a, a suicide attempt saved my life, saved my marriage, saved my faith. I'd given up on it all. I I had given up that there was any hope that I could be... Well, I listened to the lies of shame. I I listened to the lies of shame Brene Brown talks about so wonderfully and daring greatly that I was not enough. I believed I was not man enough. I believed I was not Christian enough, father enough, husband enough. I believed I was not enough. And – so in the five years of recovery from that suicide attempt, having a wife who said, I will stand by you if you will fight, if you will get really honest, if you will do the work of recovery, I will stand by you because I believe in the man that I married. And that that is messy grace. That's what messy grace is all about. Um, so. I have a little girl. I have a three and a half year old little girl. I wouldn't have her because I would have given up on this marriage. We would have divorced. I would have walked away from the ministry. I would have walked away from my faith. I tried to walk away from it all. But God met me in that ICU room as wild and bizarre as this story sounds. Day one, when I woke up, I'm laying in that hospital bed at the end of my robe, hating myself, and I felt this warm hand on my chest, and I heard God whisper, I'm not finished with you yet. That is the message of Messy Grace. Yes, sir. That whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done – Paul Young says it best, there is no darkness that I bring to the table that God is not already in. And at the very darkest place, you will find that Jesus is there just asking for an invitation into the darkness.
2: That's big stuff, Steve. I think we'll just stop right there. Thank you so much for your story. Mm,
0: Thank you. I'm honored to share with you, Tracy, and with all your folks. You're a good man. Mm. Thank you. You're a good gal.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we had to end up there with a little bit of Arkansas and Alabama ease kind of talks. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad I've gotten to know Steve. And thank you so much, my brother, for sharing with our tribe. If you want to talk to Steve about anything, he is just a tweet away. We're going to add a link to his blog, his social media accounts, his uh, books, and his podcasts in our show notes. If you'd like to talk with Steve about life coaching, perhaps, he's actually offering a discount coupon of $25 toward creating a customized self-care plan just for you. We're going to have a link and instructions to that in the show notes at rebootspodcast.com, episode 18. Now, I do tease Steve for tweet storming, but the truth is I've seen more people in the past few months that I can count say that Steve's work has saved their lives. So if you happen to know someone who could benefit from hearing Steve's story, share it, would you? I'm Tracy Winchell. We'll see you next time.
1: We hope this episode has helped you in some way. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Maybe someone you care about might benefit from The Reboots Podcast. It's easy to share from our website, rebootspodcast.com. The Reboots Podcast is a production of Winchell Storyworks Incorporated, a company dedicated to helping businesses and individuals know, share, and live their stories in order to impact the world around us in a positive way and to achieve financial freedom.